This is the Reform Financial Advisor Podcast. My name is Andy Flattery. I am a certified financial planner and owner of Simple Wealth Planning, a registered investment advisor. All opinions expressed by me and all of my guests are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Simple Wealth Planning. This podcast is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment, tax, or legal advice. Clients of Simple Wealth Planning may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the Reform Financial Advisor. I am excited to introduce my friend Sean Mullaney to the podcast. Uh, Sean is the the president and a financial planner with Mullaney Financial and Tax, and he is the author of the book Solo 401k, The Solopreneur's Retirement Account. And I know Sean as the FI tax guy. So I'm excited to have have him on the podcast. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Andy, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to our discussion. I, I am too. It's been a long time since we've we've done a podcast together. You and I met a few years ago through the Catholic Financial Planners Network. And Sean, one of the things I've been impressed by just sort of watching you, watching what you're doing online is that you've really been able to um sort of develop a reputation for yourself as as a tax expert online. I guess maybe what I wanted to do is just for starters here, if if you could maybe just share what your experience has been like over the last few years in sort of leaving the corporate America, um, starting your own firm as, as a solopreneur yourself and uh, sort of developing a reputation for yourself as a tax expert online. Because I, I see you having quite a bit of success in that from from my vantage point. Yeah, thanks, Andy. So, um, yeah, I'm a career changer, right? So, I was an accounting major in college, and you know, learned accounting, and eventually wound up in tax. With actually, when I came out, it was big five accounting firms. Today, they're big four accounting firms. So that's how that's how old I am. But uh, anywho, uh, you know, I started up a successful career in corporate tax. That even involved a spell through law school, leaving you know, graduating law school, started work at the IRS. Did that for a little over three years and then went to the national office of one of the big four accounting firms. And so I had had a good career in that. However, I always had that itch in terms of personal finance. I was very interested in it. In college, I read The Millionaire Millionaire Next Door. Uh, I would watch Susie Orman on Saturday nights. I would read The Weekend Investor, The Wall Street Journal's, uh, you know, insert in, in every Saturday on personal finance. So I had this sort of itch on the personal finance side, but as you can appreciate, it's hard to leave a successful career. And eventually that itch got so much that I had to scratch it, right? So in 2018, I, I did several things, actually. I, I left my big four accounting job. I got married and then I started the process of getting my firm set up and I got all the licensure stuff done in 2019. And so, yeah, I'm a career changer and now I have a sole financial planning practice and I've been at it at a little over three and a half years. And then in terms of sort of branding and sort of working on phytaxguy.com is my blog. And I like to say that I'm a tax focused financial planner, right? I, I work in all areas that are relevant to personal finance, but you know, my enthusiasm tends to be more on the tax side. And so I'd say a couple things about that. One, that's just sort of natural. I was a tax person in my first career, so not the same rules, not the same issues, but you know, there are it's sort of the, that mentality around it and just sort of that sort of focus on the tax stuff. So 
you know, you know, as I'm starting my firm and starting this new pursuit back in 2018, 2019, um, you know, I thought, well, the one area I can sort of ramp up quick in is the tax side. And then I, I'd been attracted to the financial independence movement. Um, I like to say that before I found financial independence, all these things about uh, personal finance, you know, index funds, uh, backdoor Roth IRA, 401k contributions, whatever it might be, they were sort of like the shiny things on a construction site, like the granite countertops or the marble inlays for the bathroom or whatever it might be. But they're just sort of materials. They're just sort of parts that are lying around the construction site. What financial independence did for me was it made that a blueprint, made it an actual house. Um, you know, I think, hey, let's do a backdoor Roth IRA. Doesn't that sound great? Well, yes, but why are we doing it? And to my mind, eventually it becomes not all that appealing if we don't have a why. And so financial independence gave me that why. And then I just saw a need out there in terms of content creation. I, I started with a blog and now I have a small YouTube channel. Uh, but in terms of content creation, there wasn't much out there sort of marrying this financial independence thing with the tax thing. And if I've got an interest in financial independence and sort of a natural proclivity towards the tax side, that was sort of a perfect marriage. I have no idea how I came up with the moniker FiTaxGuy.com. Um, just sort of, you know, God gave me a little inspiration one day because I guess he figured I could benefit from having a blog and maybe some people could benefit from the educational resource. So, uh, Andy, that's sort of my journey into being a career W-2 person and now having my own solo financial planning practice. Yeah, that's terrific. And um, and that's very entrepreneurial too, that you sort of took your expertise and recognized a, a gap that was just out there. You know, you could you call it the marketplace or just, you know, the, the, the content that exists in the, in this, in this emerging space, which, you know, you call like the financial independence movement um, or early financial independence movement. Even um, I, Sean, I will, like, you know, the cheat code for financial planners like me is you just Google everything. And I will um, be looking up a question about something and find your blog. <laughs> like probably. Yeah, it's I, interesting. I so I haven't told I, you that before, but yeah. Oh, yeah. So Andy, I would not refer myself in terms of SEO, right? So mm -hmm. I am not the SEO guy. And in fact, I've had some SEO success almost purely by accident. Um, one of the areas I do very well on is something called Section 199A Dividends. And the main reason I do well on it is not because of some grand intention I had. It's because I wrote about a topic that few others mm -hmm. decided to even write about. And the thing that happens is folks get their 1099 DIVs every January and February from their financial institution, uh, sometimes in March or, or April. And they get this thing in the mail and there's a box five on it and it says section 199A dividend. And there's an amount there. And nobody I know went to school to figure out what the heck a section 199A dividend is. So this is one of those things that people Google and they, people, they Google it at a predictable time of the year. And my content is some of the only content in the world out there on this. And so uh, folks find my website that way. I, you know, I do okay on some of the other uh, things. And the blog is a little over four years old now. So it's, you know, I've written enough about the backdoor Roth IRA that at times it certainly does come up. Um, so yeah, thanks for saying that, Andy. Um, you know, I, I like the idea of having this resource out there. And sometimes, you know, people will ask a question, you know, you know that's one of my recent uh, blog posts on, on the income limit on a Roth IRA contribution. I had to do a double take on this question and I figured, well, 
If I'm doing a double take on this question, I would think that most folks would have some questions about it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's spot on. And uh, the other thing that I I always think about, Sean, with your blog, when I see your blog, I always think, oh, that's the fit tax guy. I always read it like that. <laughs> I don't know if that's double entendre. Are you trying to like suggest that you're jacked as well? Well, I've also heard the fit axe guy. Um, yeah, so sometimes when you put these things together, right, right. they don't uh, they don't look good on paper. But that's not why I do it. Um, it is funny, but uh, it's not a bad it's not a bad moniker. But like I said, Andy, I wouldn't go to me for uh, SEO optimization. Well, I, you've definitely positioned yourself as as the financial independence guy that that is the expert in taxes. What made you sort of take that to the next level and say, great, now it's time to actually produce a book on a very specific topic? Yeah. So this is several things, right? So uh, this is my book about the solo 401k. And I like to say that I'm both a pusher and a user of the solo 401k. So I myself have one for my financial planning practice. And you know, I think it's just an incredible opportunity for those who are self-employed one of the things that's occurred in my practice as I work with clients and prospective clients, I found that there's just a ton of confusion out there about solo 401ks. And this is both, uh, or even more than both, this is end users, right? Solopreneurs themselves. This is financial planners. This is tax return preparers. I've seen all sorts of mistakes, confusion out there on the solo 401k. And the other thing too is I don't think there are that many good resources out there on the solo 401k. So I think you have confusion, you have lack of writing in the marketplace. And look, a blog post nice, but a book does take it to the next level. And I'll say this, I learned a lot writing the book too, as you can imagine. Um, so it was this sort of natural marriage of my interest and a, a real need that I see out there in the marketplace for this information and this knowledge. Um, so when those things came together, it, it made a lot of sense to write the book. Um, and I hope what I'm doing in writing the book is clearing up some of that confusion that unfortunately exists out there on solo 401ks. Yeah. And I think your book, um, it, it sort of um, unpacks some of my bias that I have had in the years that I have you know, worked as a financial advisor in that you know, sort of the default option for if you, call it, you know, want to call it the solopreneur uh, would have been to say, okay, great. If you, if you want to go this route – and sort of create your own um, retirement plan, like the place to start is maybe something like the SEP IRA. And, you know, your book points out that um, there is reason to believe that the solo 401k has come, you know, far enough along now where it's probably pretty underappreciated at this point. So, um, yeah, I mean, what, what, what made you think that it was time to like, well, I guess, first off, first question is, um, are you recognizing maybe something in the, in sort of just career career paths in general where there are more solopreneurs emerging? And are you also recognizing that just it's getting a lot easier to, to do a solo 401k in a much more cost-effective way? Um, tell me more about that aspect of it. Yeah. So I, I think there's both going on, right? So um, I myself, look, I was a career W-2 worker until age 40. And I got that itch to go out on my own. And I really like being out on my own, right? I get to define whatever metrics of success, you know, is success for me in my practice. 
Uh, and I see this happening. I think, you know, even the pandemic was a piece of it, although frankly, it was just accelerating an already existing trend. We live in a tech enabled world. So why do you need to trudge into an office building every day? And then why do you need to do the same task for the same employer, right? So maybe you're really good at your W-2 job today, uh, but you can do it in a tech-enabled world from your own living room, from your own home office, whatever it might be. Why do you need to do that for one and only one customer, right? I, I think W-2 employment is going to sort of change and evolve and, and sort of be reduced in the future. That's sort of the way I, I think things are going. One, because of this tech-enabled world where somebody could do the same job for three, four, five different employers. And two, I think employers are going to be a little more cost conscious. We're starting to see some layoffs in the tech sector, mm -hmm. which has been a real uh, source of very lucrative W-2 employment. As we record this, there's been some headlines around, oh, this big tech company or that big tech company is starting to go through some layoffs. And so I think there's sort of this natural folks want more freedom. They want more independence. Employers maybe don't want to be locked into writing that same paycheck every pay period. So I think the trend is towards the solopreneurship. Um, so I, I definitely think that's going on. And then, Andy, I, I apologize. What was the second part of the question? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then just uh, this is maybe the more boring part, but um, you point out in the book that the uh, the default option or the bias, and I totally think that I have had this too, is just to say, well, then do something like a SEP IRA as as the solution for the solopreneur. Yeah, great point. So yes, the, the solo 401k, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of it. It has a main rival and that's the so-called SEP IRA. And the SEP IRA has been prevalent for many, many years. And before the year 2002, it's actually, there's very good reasons for that, where the SEP IRA in most cases actually made more sense than the solo 401k. The law changed in 2001, starting in 2002. And these days, when you look at the contribution limits, the solo 401k usually beats out the SEP IRA. At very, very high incomes, they're about the same. But for most solopreneurs, the solo 401k allows you to get more into a solo 401k, and it allows Roth contributions, with which a SEP IRA does not. But the world changes slowly, and folks didn't really pick up on these law changes. And so a lot of the practitioners default to the SEP IRA because that's what, you know, folks who came up in the 90s of SEP IRA, SEP IRA, SEP IRA, and generally speaking, rightfully so. These days, uh, the numbers, I think, work out a lot better for the solo 401k. But the big difference, the big thing you have to do with a solo 401k to make the numbers work is you have to do the planning during the year. Part of the reason advisors love the SEP IRA is the deadline is the tax return deadline. You know, So that's into the following year. And if you file an extension, you get even more time. So you don't have to do that upfront planning with the SEP IRA. With the solo 401k, you got to do some upfront planning to really max the thing out in most cases. So um, I, I think uh, that's, that's another reason I wrote the book is that the SEP IRA is not as good, in my opinion, as the solo 401k for most folks, but the SEP IRA sort of stubbornly hangs in there as the favorite account of many advisors and many taxpayers. And look, many people have done great things with the SEP IRA, built up tax advantage wealth, taken tax deductions. That's great. But I do think as the world changes, we have to change as advisors. And I do think the solo 401k in so many situations is the better choice for most clients. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. Sean, one of the things that, you know, you do is, um, I, I don't know, you just, you seem pretty passionate about just taxes and tax planning in general, um, which, you know, I think for a lot of us would just be pretty a boring and mundane subject, but you have a chapter in the book about the tax planning mentality. Um, so maybe just what is that and, and why does, why is the tax planning mentality important? Yes. So, let me start off with what it's not, and then I'll get to what it is, right? So a lot of folks out there, and this this goes way beyond financial planners and tax return preparers, right? A lot of folks out there say, you know, here's what I'm going to do for my tax planning. Year's over. It's February, March. I'm going to get all my stuff together, go to my CPA, go to my EA, go to whoever prepares my tax return, and they're going to give me t- great tax planning, Right. That's not how it works, right? A tax return is important, right? Because we're all legally obligated to pay taxes and file tax returns, right? So we want to get that tax return right and accurate, but a tax return looks backwards, right? It looks at what happened last year. Let's report it. And maybe there's some play in the joints in terms of Congress does allow a few things where maybe we can make an election or make a decision that gives us some benefit, but that's not tax planning. Tax planning is upfront before and as income and expenses are being incurred. What we do is we do affirmative planning. We get out in front and none of this is rocket science, right? We are not splitting any atoms, right? If we were, I wouldn't be in this field, right? Uh, So what we need to do is just get out in front of this and have some intention and use educational resources, right? My blog, my book, that's an educational resource for folks out there. There are others, right? There are plenty of other good resources out there. Um, But that's what what the tax planning mentality is about is saying, well, not that I need to split an atom, but what I need to do is just get out in front of this a little bit and say, how do I reduce my total lifetime tax by doing things upfront as I'm building a business or making money or thinking about retirement, those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. I, that's, and, uh, it's really sort of no, no fault of the tax preparer in general. Like they're, they're doing their job, you know, frankly, like they they get paid to, you know, in their, in their view, give you the biggest return that they can manage for that year. And then the transaction's done and move on towards the next year. And so it's really important that you, uh, you know, maybe you wear both hats or maybe you engage with somebody like Sean Mullaney that can actually help plan for the future and sort of work in, in, in part with your tax preparer to actually be able to look ahead. What, what are some of the more obvious ways to do this, Sean? Like the more obvious examples of like how, you know, um, regular folks will engage in tax planning. Yeah. So, uh, and some of this can be DIY. Some of it can be working with an advisor. Um, the, where I start is you should be looking to reduce total lifetime tax. So what I mean by that is sometimes you'll see out there, Oh, get this big juicy tax deduction this year. It's like, well, okay, great. I saved a little money on my taxes, but that's not really a plan, right? Um, what you ought to do is look at your total lifetime situation, right? Am I working now? Am I self-employed now? Is my income low now versus next few years? Or is it high now versus the future, right? Take a look at your particular circumstances and structure your affairs through things like retirement accounts, through things like the solo 401k if you're self-employed, um, through things like maybe a backdoor Roth IRA or whatever it might be, Um But look at those things that you could do today to help reduce your total lifetime taxation 
And a lot of Americans have this opportunity because not too many of us are planning to work until we die, mm-hmm. right? We think that at least at some point in our financial future, we are going to have lower income. That's because of an early retirement, of a conventional retirement, um, of a winding down of our careers, whatever it might be. But we're going to have at least some years, we're going to have some opportunity to take advantage of being in a lower tax bracket. Um, and that's true even for the later retiree, right? For the person who's just in love with their career or maybe for whatever reason um, they need to work later in life or they just enjoy it. Um, even those folks tend to have at least some window to do some very advantageous planning. So that's that mentality around how do we reduce our taxes over our entire life is sort of how I would start it. And I do think for most Americans, the retirement account system and things like health savings accounts are where the real bang for the buck is in those sorts of things. You got to remember, too, today, uh, something like 90 plus percent of Americans take the standard deduction. So, yes, there can be some opportunities in terms of deductions, in terms of charitable planning. But for most folks, you, you know, deductions today don't really go as far as they they used to, right? You know, before 2018, we had low standard deductions, so a lot of folks itemize, and that was a big part of how you would sort of manage your tax liability. These days, that opportunity is not as readily available. So things like maybe maxing out a traditional 401k at work where you're excluding a bunch of income, maybe that's the better tax plan. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I always think about like... Um Oh, the example of, uh, was it, was it Mitt Romney a decade ago where he had something like a $50 million IRA and, um, uh, you know, which, so somebody did some tax planning with him to figure out how to (laughs) shield his IRA, um, from, from capital gains, um, at least in the near, the near term. And, you know, well, yeah, that was such an interesting situation, Andy, because I don't know if you remember back. Vaguely. Yeah. Vaguely. this is more more than ten right. years ago, but he got criticized for paying a low tax right. rate because so he's running for president and he, you know he releases his tax return and he pays this very low tax rate because most of his income was capital income. And I looked at it and I, you know I don't want to cast any aspersions, but you know the other thing that was in the news was well he's got a hundred million dollar IRA and this was twenty eleven the law had just changed. Mm. He could have done Roth conversions. Mm. And the thing about it was he could have done a ton of Roth conversions, which would have all created ordinary income tax, which would have jumped up his tax rate, right? Because capital, you know, back then I think it was only 15%. So you could have a billion dollar capital gain. You were only going to pay a 15% rate. You could add another billion, still a 15% rate. The, you know, Roth conversion income going from that traditional IRA to a Roth IRA would have created ordinary income which would have jumped him through the tax rates. And I think it was 35 was the highest rate back then. So he could have had a lot of his income taxed at 35%. And then, you know, next level chess, you know, some people might have pointed out, well, that's just a Roth conversion. And he could have, the press release would have written itself. My advisors advise me for estate planning purposes to engage in this transaction, a perfectly legal Roth conversion, which would have had benefits for his mm. children, you know, and would have given him a political benefit. So sort of a, an odd uh, tax and political uh, you know, case. Maybe his advisors advised him to it. I wonder if they missed it because 
in the year, you know, the first time you could do a Roth conversion if you were as wealthy as or high income as Mitt Romney was 2010. So I wonder if they just missed it. Somehow. Oh, that's interesting. So but you're was, you're saying like you're yeah. kind of Machiavellian saying he could have scored political points by realizing income in the conversion, and he gets the benefit of converting to Roth, which would help his children receive his estate in a more tax advantage way. Yeah, it would yeah. do two things. It would one, yeah, like you're saying, his his kids would then inherit a Roth mm-hmm. IRA, not a traditional IRA, right? So um, there'd be RM, you know, under those rules back then, there'd be RMDs, but they're fully tax free. And the other thing too is he'd be getting income tax out of his estate, so he'd be lowering his future estate tax too. So it would have had very nice estate tax benefits. Now you could debate it on from an income tax perspective, but he had a political issue for getting. You know, oh, is this tax efficient from an income tax perspective? So it was so interesting to me that he did not do a Roth conversion in 2011, knowing that he's going to be running for president and knowing that, oh, people are going to be saying he's just paying a 15% tax rate. Isn't that terrible? Well, he could have juiced up his tax rate into the 30s with massive Roth conversions and gotten an estate tax benefit. And it would be perfectly legal and perfectly justifiable. Um, But yeah, yeah. So that's one of those weird... Uh, intersection of individual tax, retirement planning, and politics. Yeah. Um, we're probably not going to see that anytime soon again. Uh, but today, yeah, we, you know, the other thing about that was before 2010, if your income was over $100,000, you couldn't even do a Roth conversion. So in 2009, that was, that strategy was not on the table for mm. Mitt Romney. But in 2010 and 2011, it was fully on the table, but he didn't take advantage of it back then based on his, his uh, you know released filing. So... Uh, yeah, a fun, fun intersection of, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not, that was probably more pre social media, at least to the point. So, I mean, it's, it sounds like the sort of thing that Elon, if Elon ever did that strategy, he would, uh, he would do it to full effect and make sure that everyone knows that he, he's realizing <laughs> that income. Okay. So speaking of sort of creative ideas, um, you've got a chapter on sort of, um, developments in, uh, the 401k, you talk about real estate. Um, you got a, a segment on crypto. Um, I want to talk about my favorite topic, which is Bitcoin. Um, what, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on the idea of doing something like, like doing something like crypto or Bitcoin in a solo 401k? W- where do you stand with that idea? Yes, this is a great question. And I think you could look at it different ways, right? So the main reason to hold something like Bitcoin or another crypto in a solo 401k is getting outside realization, right? So what I mean by that is, you know, one day, oh, I have, you know, Bitcoin and now I want to go into another crypto. And then a month later, I want to go into a third crypto. So I'm constantly buying and selling. If it's in a solo 401k, that doesn't go on my tax return, right? So it's less, um, you know, fewer transactions, less potential capital gains on my tax return. So that'd be the primary benefit of doing Bitcoin or another crypto inside a solo 401k. But generally speaking, I tend to come out against crypto in a solo 401k. And I'll give you a few reasons. One is fees, right? So you're not going to be able to set up the solo 401k with crypto at most of the discount brokerages. Now, Fidelity is allowing crypto in their regular 401ks. I've not actually researched if they're allowing it into their solo yeah, 401k. Yeah, I think it's yet, I, looked, so I think I, it's like $5 million minimum plan right now. So I think that's how they're doing it. Oh, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> there you for go. most of the solopreneurs, we're not mm-hmm. going to be doing that. Um, so one of the things 
you know, I don't like this idea of holding crypto in a solo 401k in the sense that we're now going to have to do a self-directed account. We're going to have to find a particular uh, institution to do that with, and they're going to charge fees on that, right? So from a fee perspective, I'd rather not have, I'd rather have the, the crypto just in a regular, you know, taxable account, right? And we're not here to discuss, discuss hard storage and cold storage mm-hmm. and all that stuff, right? That's a whole other yeah. podcast episode, maybe multiple podcast episodes. Okay. Um, but all right, fees. Well, some people are more than willing to incur fees, right? So for a lot of the audience, maybe that's not going to be very persuasive. Okay, fine. Well, then let's play out the economics of our crypto, right? And in today's environment, and look, this could change in five years, but in today's you know late 2022, early 2023 environment, I think one word we can all agree on when we talk about crypto and its returns is volatility. Right today, it's just a volatile asset. That is what it is. All right, so let's play it out. Right, if it's a volatile asset, that means a substantial loss is a real possibility. Right, so we buy you know a certain cryptocurrency at a hundred dollars a coin, it drops down to twenty dollars a coin. Well, we could sell that if it's in a solo four hundred one k. That does no be- there's no benefit of that. But if it's in a taxable account. We can now do tax loss harvesting. And in fact, crypto is great for tax loss harvesting because there's no wash sale rule on crypto, at least today. That could change too. Um, So if we have a big loss in our crypto, which is at least a theoretical possibility, that's not a 0% possibility, we love having that that loss on our tax return. So why hide that loss from the IRS in a solo 401k? So in one somewhat likely scenario, crypto in the solo 401k doesn't work well. Well, okay. Now your response to me is, well, wait a minute. Nobody's investing in crypto to have a big loss. They're investing in it to have a big old gain. Well, okay. Fair enough. Let's play that out for our listener who is under 59 and a half years old, which I suspect, Andy, in your audience may be a lot of the listeners, right? So we're under 59 and a half. And we park a bunch of crypto in a Roth solo 401k. I go through this example in my book, right? So we buy 10,000 worth of you know, XYZ coin right, in our Roth solo 401k. It, in a year's time, goes to 200,000, right? So we have a, you know, you know whatever that is, 2,000 times or 2,000% return, whatever that is, always dangerous doing math on a podcast. But now we have $190,000 of gain. We invest 10000 in this crypto, goes to the moon, 200000 right? If that 200000 you know, 190000 of which is gain, is parked in a taxable account, that could be our, the down payment on our new home, right? That could be, that could be a life-changing thing for somebody who's 30 years old, 40 years old. Um, and, okay, if you hold it for a year, you pay long-term capital gains tax, you're out, right? You know, nobody wants to pay long-term capital gains tax, but for many Americans, that's going to be 15%, not the end of the world. What if that big gain when we're 30 years old could be the down payment on our house, could be most of the value of our new house in certain parts of the country? Um, What if that is parked in a Roth solo 401k? Well, guess what? If we want to access that gain, that 190000 generally speaking, we have to pay ordinary income tax, not that 15% long-term capital gains rate, no matter what our holding period is, and almost certainly the 10% early withdrawal penalty, right? We just turned a Roth into a super taxed account if we want to use that to change our life today. Um, so I worry about trapping substantial gains 
in crypto inside something like a traditional solo 401k or a Roth solo 401k. I'd rather just deal with it with the long-term capital gains rates and no early withdrawal penalty um, in a taxable account. So um, for crypto, I don't think the solo 401k works so well. I think the solo 401k works so much better for the more conventional financial assets where our returns are less volatile. Yeah, I think I think I agree with you. And um, for for anyone in the audience um, to sort of clarify um, what we're saying with like Fidelity, for example, like to my knowledge, that's the only custodian that I'm aware of where in theory you could hold like your Bitcoin, like real actual Bitcoin alongside traditional assets like, uh, you know, index funds, ETFs. Whereas, and, and by the way, that's, you know, it's not for the masses yet, as we just pointed out. And so, you know, uh, your Charles Schwab's, your TD Ameritrade's um, are not going to allow you to do that. And so what you'd have to do is you have to open up like some sort of dedicated trust account somewhere at like a crypto specific custodian. And that would be essentially the, the, the solo 401k. So you can't really partner it up with, um, you know, any other traditional assets where, you know, if you want to take a gain, you could maybe reinvest in like the, an S&P 500 index fund or something like that. That's, that's not really how this would work right now. And, um, I think, I think I agree with you, Sean. Um, it's, uh, you know, there, maybe what I would say in terms of some nuance is that, you know, there's probably some, there's a difference in like, uh, you know, uh, call it a degenerate crypto trader that's looking to make a quick buck, buck in like a long-term hodler that's, you know, sort of in it for the long run. But even there, like, I think even if you're sort of a long-term hodler and, and by long-term, you're probably talking more like five years instead of 50, um, I still think that it's it would be prudent to take some risk off the table if there is another big run up like like you point out like maybe you're going to want to live your life you're going to want to buy a house um uh and, and take some risk off the table and so so there it's it's more appropriate to have the ability to do that and um the other thing i would say too which you know maybe we don't need to totally get into but it is we are sort of in a place right now where it's not clear just um how to precisely do custody in these accounts with crypto. Um, you know, it's really, a, from, from what I can tell, it's, it's kind of hard to hold your own private keys in a self-directed 401k right now. And the regulatory environment hasn't really ironed everything out yet. And, uh, and we just saw in the last uh, few months that a lot of these custodians are not the place you'd want to put your long-term retirement savings. Um, so I think for that reason, I would agree that, um, yeah, it's probably not not worth your time to mess with it. You know, if, if you want to do a solo 401k, s- stick with the plain vanilla investments, and and you can do um, you can do Bitcoin and other in other other ways. Well, and, and Andy, you make a really good point around hodlers, right? And so in theory, you know, you, you're saying, well, on the hodlers, maybe the solo 401k isn't as bad. Because there isn't going to be these realization events so frequently, um, but I would I, the one counter to that I would say is well even for the hodler, you might want to do tax loss harvesting, mm-hmm. right? Because with with you could say look you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold you know whatever coin I want to hold, and maybe in December it's just down for the year. I mean you could sell it and you know buy it back uh, the next day, and so you really still are hodling and you can harvest that loss. So. 
you know, even for the hodler, you have that tax loss harvesting opportunity where you could still be a hodler and get some tax loss harvesting. So for those folks, you know, for, even for the hodlers, you might want to think about um, holding the crypto inside a, a taxable account as opposed to a retirement account. Although that said, that law could change, right? There was a proposal, I think in the old Build Back Better, which never passed, I believe there was a proposal to get rid of or to subject crypto to this 30-day wash sale rule where 30 days on either side of the transaction, if you have a purchase of that same thing, you would get the loss disallowed. But today, that is not the case. On yeah, definitely. I mean, I would imagine most people listening to this podcast right now, unless they're like a total OG, has the ability to do some tax loss harvesting this year. <laughs> it's been it's been a brutal year in in crypto. Um, so okay, yeah, well said, Sean. I like I like your thinking on that. Um, maybe to to just to sort of take a left turn. Um, this is just a personal curiosity for me. Um, I've noticed more people um, jumping into the space of of self-publishing a book. I just think it's super cool. Um, I've had a few people on the podcast that have done it. And to me, it just seems like a, a mountain of a task to undertake. So um, I, I guess first question is, how long have you been thinking about write, writing a book and how do you do it? Like what, what's the process for self-publishing a book? Yeah. Um, and, and my process was a little disjointed because of some personal developments and some uh, tax law developments, right? So, um, you know, my process was I spent a, a good amount of time. A lot of the book was actually written in the early part, early half of 2021. And so there you have to, you know, set some time aside and really uh, focus on it. Um, one of the most important tools is a good table of contents, right? So I didn't outline the book. What I did was I said, look, this is going to be my table of contents. And, you know, that was subject to a little bit of change in the future. But generally speaking, these are the chapters I want to write. And so I could focus chapter by chapter and, and do it that way. Um, the book actually was held up um, in late 2021 by um, the possibility that Congress was going to repeal uh, something called the backdoor Roth IRA and something called the mega backdoor Roth IRA, which was, you know, substantially changed two of the chapters of the book. Um, so that, you know, it was, it was definitely some wait and see mode. We got past that, you know, late 2021, Joe Manchin, the Senator from West Virginia basically said, we're not passing build back better. So those rules you don't have to worry about. And then, you know, there's also pro there's editing and then there's, you know, a lot of process around, you know, getting a cover, getting the Amazon listing set up, those sorts of things that requires some processing, some thinking, and usually hiring out, you know, to some third parties on that. Um, and then we were ready to, you know, basically, hey, we're just about ready to publish. Um, you know, October 4th was the date it was published late in July. So the book is basically done other than a comma here, you know, whatever. But basically the book is done late in July one day. Senators Manchin and Schumer come out. Well, remember that old bill back better? Well, we're going to pass a reduced version of it. Wait, what? You know, so um, at that point, I was very fearful for about six hours. Wait a minute, they're gonna they're gonna repeal the mega backdoor Roth and the regular backdoor Roth IRA, and now I'm not gonna be able to publish this book in October because it'll just be immediately out of date and you know incorrect. And so I, you know, was looking up, you know, spending a lot of time on the internet and Twitter to see if we can't get some details. Late that night, the uh, 
Biltex came out. I control F for Roth. And sure enough, those changes were not in there. Um, so when you write a when you write a book about tax, there's always this chance that, you know, Congress, look, Congress could act tomorrow, right? You could be listening to this podcast or talking about solo 401ks. In theory, they could repeal solo 401ks. I very much doubt that. But, you know, in theory, anything's possible, right? So um, there's always that risk that uh, the rules could change very, very suddenly. So I'm glad I got it out when I did during a time where the rules, they, they, the rules may change in late 2022. Um, you know, I don't know when folks are listening to this podcast, but we're now dealing with the prospect of the lame duck Congress. And it looks like if they're going to change some rules, they're going to be sort of on the margins. I actually have a chapter in the book about some of those considered changes and sort of how they change some stuff in the book on the margins, right? Very, very much tinkering, not um, sort of bigger changes like they were considering in the old Build Back Better. So, um, yeah, so the book took the better part of, you know, basically almost two years, about one and three quarters years. Um, and, and, you know, it, but that varies. I think, you know, if it wasn't a tax book and it wasn't subject to, oh, maybe there's going to be tax law changes, it would have taken less time. It, I wasn't working every waking moment in those almost two years. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, um, I guess how, how, how do you justify your time being spent writing a book when you're also running a firm? That's, I mean, that's, that's working yep. for a year and a half before you, you, you know, you see the, the fruits of your labor. How, how do you think about that aspect of it? Yeah. So I thought of this book as, I don't know if there are any Texas Hold'em uh, poker players here uh, or listening, but it's sort of like a drawing hand. So if you play poker, you know, um, they, like a Jack 10, when you get the two whole cards, the two cards you dealt and you see maybe Jack 10 suit, right? Jack 10 suited by itself is not a premium hand, right? Because, you know, two Kings, two Queens, two Jacks beat it easily, right? Two of anything by itself beats it. But the Jack 10 suited can what they call draw to all sorts of great combinations. It can draw to a royal flush, a straight flush, a eight, you know, so a ace high flush, ace high straight. It can draw to a jack high straight, a queen high straight, a king high straight, a king high flush. You know, there are so many different ways it can work out. And that's sort of the way I, I view the book. I said, look, the book by itself, look, I'm not John Grisham, right? So this thing isn't going to sell a million copies. But what could it do? It could give me credibility in the industry and with prospective clients. It could uh, bring more clients in the door to my firm, right? Because it could get publicity. You know, it could get me on podcasts like your podcast, mm -hmm. Andy. And now it gets me more visibility, um, you know, either, you know, and or it'll, I'll sell a bunch of books, right? So it could be any combination of those three. I will say the market on books these days is not great. It's, it's controlled by one particular player. We all know who that player is. And even when you self-publish, there are plenty of mouths at the trough, meaning, you know, some, the retail price of my book, uh, paperback, is $19.99. I believe the royalty I get uh, if, if I sell it on Amazon is like $8.44. Because uh, there's a printing cost, there's Amazon's cost, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then on Kindle, I get a better royalty, right? It's $9.99. And I think the royalty is like $6.92 because there's not the printing cost. Um, and Amazon likes that $9.99 price point. So get, giving the listeners a little more on the economics of self-publishing. Um, so, you know, so 
I wouldn't go into self-publishing if you're just looking to make a ton of money on a book. But if there are other reasons, right, it, it, it gives you knowledge, it gives you prominence in the industry, it gets you on podcasts, it gets your blog more, uh, more visitors, uh, it potentially brings in more clients in the door, it can be justifiable that Oh, way. yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you 100%. I, I think a lot of the books that I read I that are like on my list that I'm reading right now are books that I've literally just heard about on podcasts, you know, or it's like... There might be an author that I'm interested in or like a, a book that is on my list and maybe I will listen to the podcast of that author and like that will help me decide if I'm going to read the book or not. So um, yeah, I think that's, that's a beautiful strategy, Sean. That's great. Well, cool, man. It's good. Sean, it's, it's great to, to speak with you again. Um, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Um, where, can, where can the listeners find the book and, and follow you? Okay, so the book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, some of the other electronic book uh, sellers like Apple Books and those sorts of things. So that's where folks can find the book. I have a landing page for the book on my blog where you can find me. That's phytaxguy.com, phytaxguy.com, sort of the intersection of tax and financial independence. And then my financial planning firm is mulaneyfinancial.com. Great, Sean. Appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Great talking with you today, Andy. Thanks so much for having me My on the pleasure. podcast. What a fellowship, what a joy to bind leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine leaning.